0: You ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. Who? Huh? i was tired of
1: hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore. Pay no
0: attention to that man behind the curtain. Did you tell me you built a time machine? Kind of a DeLorean? Uh-oh.
2: Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mundus. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hello there, children. Hey, hey,
3: kids. <laughs> People seem to like
1: me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Annie Goodman and Matthew Sachs. Woohoo!
0: Not that there's
1: anything wrong with us. Because he has a lot of chips behind All right.
3: Monday, March 3rd. Happy March and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show. The voice of Young adult Cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. My co-host, Andy Goodman, in an undisclosed location in a bunker deep underground, recovering from her cancer treatments. We wish her well. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? sucks huh time to get busy living folks because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time
2: and i am not kenny kane i am maureen sweet manager of programs and operations here at stupid cancer welcoming all of our first time and returning listeners on blog talk radio itunes iHeartRadio talk or listening to the archives of
3: stupidcancershow.org i was going to say kenny you look different tonight
2: yeah yeah i dyed my hair <laughs>
3: Tonight's show, a spotlight on our friends at the Ullman Cancer Fund for Young Adults. Join us as we speak with the leadership there, CEO Brock Yeso and Program Manager Laura Scruggs, for an exclusive roundtable highlighting the Foundation's programs, mission, and impact for young adults with cancer. So far, spotlight on an awesome young adult survivor, Stephanie Madsen from Denver, founder of Derailing My Diagnosis.
2: And in addition to picking up all of Kenny's lines tonight, I will be live tweeting throughout this broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time using hashtag FB Radio. Very
3: nice. Look at you, grown-up old, filling them in for Kenny and whatnot. Look at
2: me stealing his line. Who needs, Who
3: needs Kenny? Who
2: needs Kenny?
3: Where is Kenny anyway? San
2: Antonio needs Kenny. That's
3: right. He, Kenny is, um, this is his first radio show they've ever missed, ever. Ever? Since he took over, like, the co-production of the show. Wow. Like, two years ago, he's never missed a show. and Wow. We're suffering dearly for it. This is
2: a very non-ginger show.
3: <laughs> is, I'm, sure,
2: I'm sure it's just going to go through in the entire broadcast. The lack of one.
3: redheadedness in the room is yeah, scathing. It's, yeah. it's just a weird feeling
2: that we don't normally have here.
3: So he's in um, San Antonio at an industry conference called E-Tail, like retail without the R, E-Tail.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And he's there learning all about how to buy and sell, and supply chain and demand planning and all these fancy industry terms, and he's networking with, I think there's over like 1,000 or 2,000 people there from multiple yeah. corporations. Yeah,
2: that's what I hear. There's a whole big bunch of folks.
3: It's a really big industry. So he is uh, in a disclosed location, not an undisclosed location. <laughs> yep, he have
2: disclosed that yes. he is in San Antonio. Um,
3: and, uh, at a hotel
2: with a whole lot of swimming
3: pools. Exactly, area. exactly. Very nice.
2: Lots of pity we have for him
3: right now. Well, we have. Um, well, we we hope he has empathy for us for our weary traveler woes. You
2: know, I hope so too. Yes, I hope he has a lot of empathy. For
3: us. <laughs> He's used to it by now.
2: So, uh, so Matt and I had a great weekend. Though we went down to San Antonio via Austin. Uh couldn't get a direct flight to San Antonio on JFK, so we flew to Austin, took a road trip, stopped at barbecue. If anyone's been to Salt Lake. that is the best place on earth. We discovered Salt Lake. Oh my God. And then we continued to our actual plans for the weekend at the Texas Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology Conference, Um, one of the only conferences that I know that's a statewide conference for AYAs. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was really great. Dr. Jaime Estrada puts that together uh, with a lot of teams at uh, the UT Health Sciences Hospital as well as Methodist Hospital down there. And we, we had a really great time. We exhibited. We presented a poster. Matt spoke twice. We want to talk about that?
3: Yeah. Um, I was actually at the first annual, not the, well, the inaugural, I suppose. You don't say first annual, TAYA conference in 2009, right? Or 2000, this
2: was the fourth. So I guess it would be 2010. Yeah. 2011. Yeah. Right. Was, yeah.
3: <clears throat> and they were just kind of getting their bearings. It was the very first time that Texas United for, Beyond a cause, and, and threw some clinical stuff at it, not necessarily patient stuff at it. And it was mm-hmm. really interesting to see how far they've they come. They asked me, "This is, it was um, special, because it was CME, which means continuing medical education." So all the nurses, social workers, oncologists that came got credit toward their degrees and their ongoing medical education. Um, and I had to add some specific questions and answers to the to the slide. But I, I made a whole new, brand new presentation just for this, and I did give it twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is very interesting, um, and uh, you witnessed my giving a speech for the first time. Yes, my very first time.
2: He's pretty good at it, guys. I <laughs> we should go see him give a speech sometime.
3: And uh, so the second speech was for a community event for everyone um, down at the, uh, what was it called? Um,
2: it was called, the event was called Keep Cancer Lame down at the Pearl, the Brewer Pearl Brewery.
3: The Pearl Brewery, yes. Yeah. Really cool venue. Mm-hmm. Really cool venue in San Antonio. And then maybe 80 or 90 people were there from the community, lots of survivors and caregivers and Yeah, yeah. really wonderful. Really great communities they have got going on down there for young adults. We are very impressed. Very, very impressed. And, and I think they need that vitamin B shot um, to get together and organize, and we'd like to see some real activity happening there. And then hopefully they'll filter it to the OMG Summit, and we can do some boot camps and grow that region. Because they, they tie into, like, El Paso and they tie into um, uh, Austin, Austin. Oh, some Houston's of the local...
2: not too far away.
3: I don't know. I don't speak Texas. <laughs> Houston doesn't seem too
2: far away. It's right down I-10, apparently.
3: All right. So my beef with Texas is that it was 22 degrees in Austin.
2: Yeah. What is up with that, Texas? And it was
3: 19 in Brooklyn. I don't go to Texas to get colder.
2: Your state's supposed to be hot.
3: Yes. Not Okay.
2: I packed sundresses, and then we got to Austin, and I had one pair of pants to wear for like two days. <laughs> so what had happened was we tried to get back from Austin at a 6 a, on a 6 a.m. flight on a Sunday, and there were some storms coming in, which you think might have caused problems, but the storms did not, in fact, cause any problems. What did, though, were malfunctioning bathrooms on our airplane.
3: Not a good thing.
2: No. Um, and I'm sure, you know, if there was one pregnant lady on that flight, I'm sure she would have been totally miserable. Yes. We probably could have made it. Yeah. But we sat for an hour and a half on the tarmac, then got off, then waited, and then they canceled our flight. And so we stayed an extra day in Austin.
3: But made the most of it.
2: We did make the most of it.
3: Yeah. I, and, by sleeping, most of it. <laughs> we,
2: we did a lot of napping. Yes. Um, and met up with a couple old friends down there, too, though. Yeah. So that was pretty
3: cool. Stupid Cancer Austin, taking off.
2: Stupid Cancer Austin.
3: But this was your first, I mean, you've been starting to travel more for Stupid Cancer from your professional career, but this is your first real, like... My first miserable like, travel experience, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Hospital, professional. I've, <laughs> professional I've
2: had four-hour plane delays, so hours 24 hours. You know, yeah. yeah, so it's very glamorous, everybody. Same pair of pants.
3: Super glamorous.
2: Brushing your teeth at the airports, great stuff. I've, Aspire to it. What we do for you.
3: <laughs> what we do for you out there. Anyway, um, so just uh, today, a couple of big events happening. Uh, today was the uh, colorectal cancer community, consisting of groups like the Colon Cancer Alliance, Michael's Mission, Chris for Life, um, Bicolor cancer Cancer, Town, the Colon Club. There's probably seven or eight of them. They all managed to organize in this massive public stunt today called the One Million Strong March. In New York City battling the elements yes tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of maybe two or three hundred people came really big sign of solidarity they staged a sort of a um kind of a what do they call it like a not a mod what's it called the flash mob it's not really a flash mob flash mob ish at Grand Central, they marched in Times Square okay, to kick so off
2: a peaceful gathering. Yes,
3: a peaceful, very Gandhi in their way, <laughs> Yes, yes. nonviolent. And
2: <laughs> nonviolent. At our protest of yes. colorectal cancer.
3: So kicking off March, which is colorectal National Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. Yes. And they have a brand new campaign called either like Love Your Butt or I Love.
2: I, love, or, I love booty.
3: I love booty. That's, That's what it is. Booty. I love booty. It's, it's really cool. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, that today also. March 3rd, is National um, Triple Negative Breast Cancer Day. And um, it, it, today also is a national event dedicated to raising awareness for triple negative breast cancer, or TNBC, as mm-hmm. it is called, mm-hmm. uh, to advance research and provide support. Our fabulous host, Andy Goodman, has triple negative breast cancer. She's BRCA positive, and she's exemplary of the need for more research and community. Uh, so all of us here at SuperCancer are proud to support both National Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and to promote uh, Triple Negative Breast Cancer Day today and encourage everyone to learn more about this disease at Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, which is tnbcfoundation.org. Mm-hmm. So really cool stuff. God, um, yeah, March is busy.
2: March is very busy. We're only on the 3rd. <laughs> good. good thing we've got 28 more days to, to work with.
3: Exactly. So our, I think our new um, band name should be Malfunctioning Bathrooms.
2: Yes. From lived experience.
3: Right. Yes, 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 yes. Born of our condition. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, let's kick off the show with our Survivor Spotlight. All right. right. got here. Uh, very excited.
2: So excited. We clapped early. Yes. She yes. gets a pre
3: applause <laughs> Stephanie Matson is joining us tonight. She is a 27-year-old uh, current large-cell neuroendocrine cervical cancer fighter. This is her third time through the ringer. And uh, she's confident she'll be cancer-free. 36 chemotherapy treatments, 28 radiation sessions, three major surgeries, and one bowling night with Matthew Zachary and the Super Cancer Denver crew, wow. which I think really summarizes the need for survivorship resources. We need more Super Cancer bowling nights. Yep. Please welcome to the Super Cancer Show, Stephanie Madsen. Stephanie! Hello!
1: Hi, Stephanie. Hey, guys.
3: So nice Thanks to be here. Thanks for having a me. Yeah. Yes, of
1: course. We had so much fun super- bowling last weekend.
3: You no, know, It's rare that I get to meet like, the, it, the national community that is going to be on the show, and, it was to, and, and you look so much different than your Twitter handle and your Facebook handle, because so, I, I think you have like, this rocking mohawk.
1: Yes, that was my, this last time that I lost my hair. Um, my husband shaves my head every time, and this time he's like, let's do like a sweet mohawk, so we call that my chemo hawk.
3: Right, chemohawk. Right. Very nice. So I'd love to just dive right in. Um, large cell neuroendocrine cervical cancer. That's a lot of syllables. Um, Correct. How is, uh, so let's trace the cord back. You're 26. You're living your life. What's the world like for you, and how did all this nonsense start happening?
1: So I was actually 25 when I was diagnosed, but um, about a year prior I had been having some symptoms that were, uh, worrisome um, before that I was super healthy and exercised five times a week and um, was a healthy weight and um, just living living life. I had just gotten married to my husband about a year and a half uh, prior to my diagnosis and then all these symptoms started showing up um, i had my hair was starting to thin out i couldn 't lose weight um, just a bunch of things, and I just went to several doctors, doctor after doctor after doctor, and the doctors that saw me just said, you know, you're 24, you're 25. There's, there's nothing wrong with you. You're young. You're healthy. You know, go out and live. And, but I knew something was wrong, and I'm always pretty in tune with my body, and so um, I just kept going to different doctors, uh, trying to find some sort of answer for what I was experiencing, and finally I went to um, my annual Um, checkup with my GYN, and I had gone to a different GYN, hoping that she would find something different than, or find something at all, that none of the other doctors had found, and sure enough, she did. She found what she thought was a fibroid um, on my cervix. Turns out, after she sent it to pathology, a ball-sized tumor, large-cell neuroendocrine tumor, um, completely covering my cervix. So about a week later, got a hysterectomy, and then started my chemotherapy and radiation, and here we are today.
3: All right, so let's go to that specific thing, hysterectomy, right? One of the things that one might not recognize as being a serious procedure when you have cancer in your fertile years versus when you have cancer over your fertile years, right?
2: <laughs> oh,
3: <laughs> yeah. The under and over of yeah. fertile years. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, Can you talk about that experience, the loss of that, and and were there any conversations around your fertility rights? Did the hospital you were at discuss this at all, and were there any actions taken for that specific uh, issue?
1: Yeah, you know, it was interesting um, around, you know, when I got diagnosed at that appointment and had asked, okay, so what now? And she said, well, you're going to have to have a hysterectomy. Um, so, and then after seeing my oncologist who would do the surgery, um, her and I spoke and she said, you know, we can, um, keep your ovaries, we can transpose them, you know, tack them up higher into my body, which is crazy to think that they can move organs around and, you know, other than their original positions. But so she moved my ovaries, um, but the, you know, when I, upon hearing a hysterectomy that I would have to have a hysterectomy, my husband and I were shocked because at that time, we were actually just beginning to talk about um, starting to try to have kids. So that door abruptly shut, but we, um, we were recommended to a fertility specialist out here, and so we saw her before my hysterectomy to discuss um, the possibility of harvesting eggs. And so we went in and discussed that and then found out that it would take f- about four weeks to get um, my eggs harvested and, you know, take these injections to make my eggs super amazing and um, before my hysterectomy. And it was possible to do that. But at the time, the fact that this diagnosis was such a rare um, and aggressive one, my husband and I, you know, the, the best thing that my husband said to me in that moment that gave me such peace over the decision to not harvest, um, he said, you know what, I married you for you. I didn't marry you for your future kids. So that to me gave me a lot of peace. And, you know, we, we talked about it. We prayed about it. And then we decided, you know, regardless of where our kids come from, they need a mom. And if, you know, it's just not fair to indulge in that selfish thought of, well, I really want to biologically have kids. For us, it just wasn't the best decision. And so we decided to just um, go ahead with the hysterectomy and go ahead with her transposing my ovaries in hopes that we could harvest later. But the um, priority at that time was to get rid of the cancer as soon as possible.
3: And again, a very brave and individualized decision that you chose, which is Again, this is a broadcast about the uniqueness of getting cancer in your 20s and 30s versus in your 60s and 70s. And, and one can only imagine how challenging that is to have, have to make a decision like that in the first place at such a young age. So um, I, I guess I want to just tie in all of this to, well, you had, the question is, well, you had cervical cancer. Why did you need a hysterectomy? Can you explain that to our listeners?
1: Yeah, my um my type of cancer is not your typical cervical cancer. It's the rarest form of cervical cancer. Um, it's a, it's large cell neuroendocrine. So, um, in fact, when I was diagnosed, my doctor said, you know, good luck googling anything because you're not going to find anything. She says the closest um, cancer that we know of to your diagnosis would be lung cancer. Typically, your small and large cell neuroendocrine cancers show up in your lungs, um, which made my which made my um, cervical cancer even, I mean, more alarming. So, you know, we um, went into the hysterectomy and, and that was required for this because this type of aggressive cancer um, is, I mean, quickly spreading. There are several women who are currently in treatment and the cancer is still spreading. Um, In the midst of treatment, there's, I mean, and for my case, it's come back twice um, during my original diagnosis. So getting everything out was key because, um, you know, the quicker I had everything out, the less of a chance that it was to grow on anything that wasn't in there. So, um, and actually it was interesting because we did keep my ovaries and through radiation and all of my chemos and everything, um, my eggs were no longer viable so, and my first recurrence actually happened on my left ovary. My second recurrence happened on my right ovary. So now I officially have nothing going on in there.
3: Right. Again, so that's, that's the young adult story. And, like, would it have been like well, if you chose to, I mean, I want to tie this in because they now have technology that lets you actually freeze ovaries like they would do a double uvorectomy and freeze them before any treatment, and then they would thaw them out and they can work now. They've moved fertility technology to that point, whether it's covered by insurance and costs is another story. But going back to this idea of if, if that technology were available to you or if it was possible that that was made, made aware to you, that could have even been an option which would have, you know, then you wouldn't be in a position to have a recurrence in organs that are no longer in your body but are floating in a, jar somewhere for the right reasons right
1: yeah totally i mean if if had we thought about that that would definitely would have been an option for us um you know getting them out of my body would have been key um you know so but if that if that was on the table and you know maybe it was that we just really were at peace about the decision that we made and you know we're super in it not to be like frilly and fluffy, and oh, it was the easiest decision because honestly it was the hardest decision of our lives thus far and um right. but you know the peace that we got from it and feeling like, okay, this is the right decision actually propelled us into a hope for our future kids in adopting, and adoption was always on our on the table, and we had talked about it before we were married and after we were married, and um you know, so it wasn't like we were forced into that option um it just was made more clear like okay this is what this is what we have going for our future and and now that that is for now that that is our future we are super excited but there definitely are still days where you know my husband and I talk and we we do grieve the fact that we won't see if our biological children will have his hair or my nose or right. you know you know what they'll look like but you know i think um you know we're going to be blessed with whatever kids come in our lives and however they do come
3: in our lives. Yeah, and that's like the quote, the uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, if I want to go nerd for a moment, it, which is to make the most of the time you have. And you, yeah. you seem to be at, at peace with doing that. I wanted to dive into the other uh, conversation is when most people hear cervical cancer, the narrative always goes to HPV. And that's not necessarily Correct. the scenario. So I think it's really good to talk about how there. There are so many different permutations of possibility about having it, not having it, it, causing it, not causing it, preventing it, not preventing it. So would you like to discuss that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, my diagnosis is there is no link to HPV, um, and that is a huge misconception in the cervical cancer world. You know, I think most people um, think that that is and, – and a lot of times it is, but in this rare, rare, rare form – There is no link to it. Um, Several other women who have this diagnosis have never heard HPV in their lives. You know, I did not have HPV. There was no link to it in my um, diagnosis and my further treatment and and all that stuff. So, um, you know, though, and, and the causes, too, are completely unknown. I mean, it's a sucky cancer. I mean, all cancers are sucky, but this one being that there's, Pretty much only one doctor, one team of doctors um, in Houston that knows anything about it. Um, my doctor, in fact, is like, "Yeah, whenever you get a chance, call him, <laughs> call him," because I don't really know. Um, but as far as the HPV and the cervical cancer goes, with my type, with this um, large cell neuroendocrine and small cell neuroendocrine, there, there's no links, no links to HPV. There's no cause for it. There's no um, there's not a lot of information on it besides, you know, besides that. So pretty rare.
3: Well, I mean, it's really important, though. I mean, yes, most cervical cancer is preventable if HPV is a variable, but if there were cervical cancer not caused by HPV and there's a community of women, how does that actually, how do you translate that into public discourse? And, you know, I mean, it's a good thing if you can prevent it with having like a Gardasil shot for HPV, Again, if you're getting it without having HPV, clearly that's a narrative that belongs in the conversation.
1: Yeah. I'm a huge advocate for um, self-awareness and knowing your body. And, you know, if you feel like something's off, then something probably is, whether that's something as minor as a cold or as as major as cancer. And so for me, my persistence in finding a diagnosis really helped me out. Um, Had I waited or had I just given up the fight to Figure out what was going on with my body. I may not be here today. You know, we just don't know. But with this type of cancer, it can be super aggressive and and um, very fast growing. And again, resistant to treatment. And um, so, you know, sure, there. You know, cervical cancer is not always linked to HPV, so you can't always pre- prevent it. But like any other cancer, you can't always prevent it. And so, I think the biggest um, message for that would be just be self-aware, know your body, if you feel like something's off, something probably is, um, and go to doctors. I mean, for me, I went to over, I mean, probably 10 different doctors in the span of a year trying to find something wrong because something something was wrong, but no one was telling me. And again, I think that also is, um, is a negative when it comes to us young adults. Um, most doctors, not all, but most doctors, you know, see us as healthy and, well, if you don't look like something's wrong, something's probably not wrong, when in reality, something very big could be going wrong. And um, so you've really got to push and you've really got to advocate for yourself. And if you feel like something's wrong, then you need to um, find a doctor who will stand up for you and um, join the journey in, in discovering what, what it is with you.
3: Great. And just and in meeting you, there's a, there's a great energy, and you seem to be a sort of a naturally occurring, precocious individual who likes to question authority, and I, I really respect that. So you've chosen to kind of take to the blog waves with a website called Derailing My Diagnosis, and I was hoping we could spend the next, uh, you know, we'll close off a segment of two or three minutes about, you know, what it's been like to go public and share your story and the response, and you clearly have gotten a lot of new fans uh, since you started posting two years ago. But talk us through that that challenge of, of really encapsulating your journey for public consumption. What the response has been, and uh, how you feel about now being sort of a you know a, a public figure in the blogosphere for this disease.
1: Yeah, it's been completely surreal, honestly. I started my blog, um, derailing my diagnosis out as a means to update my friends and family. You know, when we get diagnosed with cancer, we're already on the phone a ton, talking to doctors and, and our immediate family, and having to make several other calls is just exhausting. And saying the same story over and over. So for me, it was a way um, a way to kind of give everyone updates and say, you know, I got this scan result back, and this is what happened at the doctors today. And um, and I'm I'm if you know me, you know I'm open. You know, I will. Talk to you about pretty much anything, and so um, it. It, but, blogging about it was definitely different in the fact that what it has become now, um, and the platform that I that I have now is, I mean, it's just incredible. But, yeah, it did just start as a way to update friends and family, and and then I started getting more followers and more followers, and people in different countries reading, and then I would start getting emails and responses and. You know, thank you so much for writing about this. It's helped me so much. And for me, I felt like, why don't I just talk about the truth of the situation? This sucks. Having cancer sucks. But also spin it in the tw- with the twist that I still have hope and I still have faith, and I still can be joyful in the midst of such a traumatic um, journey in my young adult life. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, it's been such a blessing to, to write about it. I'm a writer, and so having this platform to, to share my story and my journeys and my highs and my lows and my, you know, boring days and, and all the in-between is is so wonderful, and I'm so thankful to be able to have the opportunity to do this. And um, and getting responses from people that they're so encouraged really affirms the fact that I have chosen to put, to put my story, to make my story public and... You know, it's just, it's just a blessing that I am able to share my journey with others. And, and it also allows people who aren't going through cancer, which a lot of my readers are, a way to see, wow, this is what it means when my mom's going through chemo or my brother just had surgery or, you know, fill in the blank. It, it helps people going through it and it helps um, those on the outside unsure of what those of us on the inside are going through.
3: Cool. Well, we've been uh, speaking with Stephanie Madsen, a uh, 27-year-old, three-time survivor of uh, large-cell neuroendocrine cervical cancer. She blogs at derailingmydiagnosis.com. Stephanie, thank you so much, and hopefully we'll see you and your husband in Las Vegas at the OMG Cancer Summit.
1: Definitely. Thank you, Matt.
3: All right, Stephanie Madsen, everybody. Thank you, Stephanie. (laughs) All righty, Maureen, let's hit up the news. Hello, Fair. I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am.
2: Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly do not want you missing out. We've got stupid cancer events coming up, two of them in Anchorage, Alaska, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and one in Lakewood, Colorado, with another one on the docket
3: for New York City. Okay, Vegas time. Reg- registration for the 7th Annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is in full force. Join 500 of your fellow young adult patients, survivors, and caregivers for an epic 3 day event that will change your life forever, says us. Visit OMG2014.org and learn more. And don't forget about the OMG Players Club, which is your path to a $600 travel scholarship just by fundraising for Stupid Cancer.
2: It's always a good time to stock up on Stupid Cancer year. We've got all new products and styles to choose from. Polar Vortex v you'll stay nice and warm in a Stupid Cancer hoodie. Surf on over to stupidcancerstore.org and be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer.
3: And finally, Stupid Cancer is launching a mobile health app called Instapier this spring, and it's going to revolutionize cancer support forever. Tell us. It is the first platform of the kind that will do automatic peer matching for cancer patients and caregivers across the board. It is incredibly exciting. Go to Facebook.com slash InstaPeer, follow at InstaPeer on Twitter, and watch the video and learn more at InstaPeer.org. And that, that is, is your Stupid, stupid Cancer news. news. All right. Nailed it. Nailed it. <coughs> okay, now it is time for our main segment here. Very exciting. Super exciting. Okay, the Allman Cancer Fund is a leading voice in the young adult cancer movement. Founded in 1997, they work tirelessly at both the community level and with national partners like City Cancer to raise awareness of the young adult cancer issue and ensure all young adults and families have a voice and the necessary tools to get busy living and make a difference for the next them. We're joined tonight by President CEO, Brock Yetto, Program Manager and Mission Engagement uh, Laura Scruggs and an alumni advocate of the Cancer to 5K program, Gino Filippo. Please welcome to the show, Brock, Laura, and Gino. Folks, how you doing? Good, hey, how you doing?
4: Matt, how are you? Yeah, I'm
0: doing good.
3: From snowy, death-ridden, snow-death-ridden Baltimore, I suppose.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely snowy, under a lot of ice here.
3: Well, thank you for taking uh, the summer. You
5: guys up there.
3: Yeah, well, we just have the cold. You yeah, took we've taking
2: that one.
3: Yeah, you took it for the team so we can get home and do the show tonight, which is great.
2: <laughs> Happy to do
3: it.
4: <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
3: And, all right, so, so again, I, just to frame again, the Ulman Cancer Fund is one of the first and oldest young adult-focused uh, on nonprofits in the country. And it was formed at a time in the late 90s with, like, this cottage industry of startup young adult groups like National <laughs> and Planet Cancer and uh, um, um, First Descent, like you guys are really the breakfast club of uh, of the young adult cancer movement now going on 18 years, and, and how much progress has there been made? So kudos for that. Uh, I wanted to just start with Brock, who can give us the history because he knows the funders. Um, the, the one and only Doug Oman, CEO of Livestrong, three-time cancer survivor, uh, decided to be the one guy to make that difference in Baltimore, and I would love it. If, Flock, you could just tell the story to our listeners.
5: Sure. Well, thanks, Matthew, for having us on. And, and you know, kudos to, to Stephanie before we move on from her story. But it's it folks like her that have enabled our organization to, to move the needle, um, getting out there and sharing their personal story. So uh, I encourage everyone to visit her blog and, and keep keep up with her. Um, so our organization, you know, as Matthew said, uh, you know, he was in that breakfast club um, and, uh you know, we're we're going on 16 years here, and, and our founder, Doug Ullman, was diagnosed with cancer in 1997 as a sophomore in college, um, and, and a lot has changed in the space. And, and thanks to people like Doug and organizations like Stupid Cancer and ours that have stepped up to the plate and tried to raise awareness and, and change what young adults uh, get um, and deserve when they receive a cancer diagnosis. So, um, as Matthew said, Doug's a three-time cancer survivor. You know, he was diagnosed in college. Um, uh, the, the short story is he he get on the phone. Uh, I won't say get on the internet because this is kind of pre-internet, um, so he couldn't get out there and share a story. But he called um, some of the the major cancer organizations in the country, which we'll rename uh, nameless, and uh, was told two things. You know, young people don't young people don't get cancer. Matthew will probably name them, but uh, young people don't get cancer, and for that reason, there's not there's not a need for organizations focused on this population. And uh, you know, he saw that as this can't be true, Um, and he set sort of a a very simple yet bold promise and vision to to people like himself that were dealing with it that no young adult should have to face cancer alone, and and really what we've been doing is working both at the community level here in the the D.C. Baltimore area as well as all across the country with with partners like Stupid Cancer and so many others that um, have, you know, come since since the organization started to to develop different programs um, that A, help young adults and families deal with sort of the the critical, practical, real issues that you face when you're dealing with a cancer diagnosis, Um, and then B, um, provide different opportunities and programs where folks can take control of their life after a cancer diagnosis and and live the life that they deserve, Um, and, uh, you know, we're excited to be around 16 years later, and and on this radio show, I had to pinch myself coming on, because I reflected back to, you know, probably... Uh, a, a dingy hotel room or, or, a, or a dingy coffee shop where Matthew and I sat together talking about where where we wanted to be as organizations. And he said, I'm going to have this amazing radio show where we're broadcasting about all the, the great work being done by organizations and individuals. Um, and I talked about, you know, bringing our services to some of the top cancer centers in the country. Um, and, and, and we're moving in that right direction. So it's great to be on to talk about the work that we're doing.
3: And and that was actually a dive bar restaurant where you and I and Doug met in 2004. <laughs> I remember it quite vividly. When he had, he was still, I think, the chief mission officer, or he had just started there. And yeah, uh, you know, the, the the salad days, I guess, we could talk about uh, the ten goodness, years ago. Is, we're
5: we're still in business. I'm not sure if that place is still in business. You can go check it out too.
3: <laughs> see. Yeah, it got a C rating in the city, and they uh, they shut down exactly. So let me turn it over to Laura. I have a huge affinity for AmeriCorps. They do amazing work. So it's it's a great exercise in their their outcomes and what they do philosophically um, that, uh, and philanthropically that, that landed you at the Almond. Fund. Can you talk about your experience at AmeriCorps?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So I was lucky enough to be interested in doing a year of service with AmeriCorps. Um, they have a program that's through a state version of AmeriCorps in which you can serve a year in a nonprofit, a very deserving nonprofit, an up-and-coming nonprofit. Um, and luckily, I had been a volunteer at the Ullman Cancer Fund throughout high school and some, sometimes through college, and they had an AmeriCorps position come up as a, a volunteer coordinator. Um, so my, I definitely started pretty small managing a lot of our university outreach programs, but found out that the Ullman Fund i had so many amazing programs and so much potential, and luckily um, I kind of found my sweet spot, my home here, and have been so inspired literally every day. Something happens or I meet someone that totally changes my life, and so I've been lucky enough to be there for the past couple of years and um, expand what we can do for more young adults that are feeling alone after they've been diagnosed with cancer.
3: So what, what drew you to the cause? I mean, obviously it's a great organization. They do great work. Had you had any familiarity whatsoever with cancer at all or uh, with young adult cancer prior to joining?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I had joined the Ulman Cancer Fund mission as a volunteer in high school, actually. Um, My good friend when she was 17 was diagnosed with melanoma. And um, of course, us, you know, high schoolers, we have a lot of other priorities other than (laughs) figuring out how to support a friend who's been diagnosed with cancer. Um, So I'm Turning to the Ullman Cancer Fund was kind of a natural progression. It's a very grassroots organization, and we were based in the, uh, in the community where the organization was founded. Um, the Ullman family went to high school right down the street from me, and so it seemed like a natural way to kind of uh, cope and heal after uh, such a close kind of dealt, and dealt such a um, thing that none of our friends had to go through. Um, So after that, um, I had been fortunate enough to work with programs that we meet survivors and their family members every single day. And so working with those programs has been uh, my main inspiration to continue to do more to try and bring programs to people and connect people that might otherwise feel very isolated.
3: (coughs) But I get asked questions a lot, like, is everyone on your staff a cancer survivor? And I'm like, no, oh, they don't have to be a cancer survivor to be on my staff. Yeah. So the idea of, you know, a young adult affected by cancer or affected by the cancer of someone else who's young, you know, becoming advocates without having to have gone through the the, the crazy bullshit of a diagnosis, thank God, you know, is, is a testament to how I believe, you know, this generation is really rallying around our own unique issues. So, so a big uh, commendation to you for, A, dealing with Brock, but B, also <laughs> r- rising in the ranks, you know, a, real, a real leader, you know, in, in the sector. Uh, so, so let's turn to, two, like, one of your national amazing programs that we partner with you on. is called Cancer to 5K, and we have one of your alumni from that program. But do either one of you want to just discuss the origin of that, uh, how it works, and what kind of outcomes have you seen? And then we'll get uh, Gina to talk about his experience.
4: Sure, absolutely. Well, Cancer to 5K is a truly unique program, kind of one of a kind in the country, and it's designed to reintroduce cancer survivors to being active. Um, It's a completely free program, and it's over 12 weeks, twice a year. And it's designed to really... um, help cancer survivors get back on their feet and reclaim their identity after having a shocking diagnosis like uh, hearing that you have cancer. Um, It was founded by a melanoma survivor, Holly Shoemaker, in 2007. After being diagnosed with cancer when she was training for the Marine Corps Marathon, she felt that um, giving up her training, giving up being active and living life to the fullest would really take away from who she was, and she didn't want cancer to be her defining feature and define the way that she lived her life while she was going through treatment. Um, So she continued to train with the support of her oncologist and her treatment team, and she completed the Marine Corps Marathon while in uh, treatment going through chemotherapy her melanoma Um, and then six, seven years later, 99 cancer survivors have successfully gone through the program and um, have crossed that finish line and after crossing the finish line of their cancer treatment. um, What we're really proud of about the program is that it's extremely inclusive. Um, We have Locations all over the country, a lot on the East Coast, Chicago, New York, are launching this year. But anyone in the world can participate online and receive one-on-one coaching that's truly invaluable, uh, getting people back on their feet, getting people back in a place where they can take control of their bodies and control of what happens um, and cross that finish line just like they hope to, we hope everybody crosses the finish line of, and hears that, that uh, as great words, you're cancer-free.
3: So let's turn it back over to Gino then. Gino is an AML, which is, I believe, acute myeloid leukemia um, from uh, Glen Burnie, Maryland, currently a biomedical engineering student. Interesting fact for the day, I was in biomedical engineering for a year and a half and decided I couldn't handle it. So he um, finished the program in 2013. Is one of their all-time, all-time fastest finishers of the cancer to 5K. Welcome, Gino. Um, I would uh, love you to just... You know, like in the spotlight, tell your story and how you found Almond Fund and what it was like to actually have a program to help you rebuild your life. This is such a meaningful thing that so many people would only wish that they had.
0: Uh, yeah, so uh, I can start my story back uh, 2012. So I, I finished my junior year of high school. I was 16 years old, and it was the, um, the week after class ended, and I was joining a driving school to, like, get my license to, you know, drive around places, because it's like uh, around the time you know everybody's getting their license, everybody's getting cars. So I thought this is a great time. I was working at a uh, somewhere a, a local uh, restaurant near my house, and then I got the call from a doctor that I saw a couple days earlier that from because I was sick that I uh, should go to the hospital as soon as possible. He said he got in touch with an oncologist at uh, Hopkins, and I should uh, go there that, that day and uh, get seen. So uh, that day I I was told that. I had a AML, a type of leukemia, and then I should start treatment that day. So, that night, I was in the um, TICU, the, the, the pediatric ICU, mm-hmm. and I was just getting uh, started chemo that night. I was uh, preparing for surgery the next day. I was getting a bunch of things done to me, a lot of blood taken out and everything. It was a, a, a hard time for me. And... Uh, once things settled down, I was told, like, the, uh, the, the path that I was going to follow. It was going to be a, a five-month, uh, chemo. Uh, it was five rounds of chemo for five months and then a bone marrow transplant in the end. So I was like, oh, that's uh, this a huge change for me. Like, am I used to this? I'm used to seeing friends. I'm used to being in school. This is my summer. I wanted to experience something new, uh, go somewhere, uh, take a road trip or something. And, uh, so I, I made it through the, uh, the 5 months. Of the uh, chemotherapy. And uh, at Hopkins for the pediatric unit, they give everybody a social worker. And my social worker's name was um, Allie, and she was from Ullman, Kansas. And so uh, towards the end of the five months, I had to uh, apply to colleges. And that's, yeah, apply early so I can get into a college to find out in the next year. So uh, she got me in touch with scholarships. She got me in um, touch with people to help me uh, write essays and kind of fill out my application and everything so Olin already helped me out from the beginning before I even knew uh exactly what they did. And then I uh, I finished my transplant and I was horribly weak. It was it was hard to walk upstairs sometimes. Uh I, I couldn't um I I kinda just stayed in my room on the middle floor of my house just like went to the kitchen like whenever I had to eat go back to my room and that's that's how I re- I I I can't really do anything. So I talked to Allie more about this, and she got me in touch with uh, Michael Klusterman, who uh, also works, I think he's in team with the Team Flight uh, woman, and he brought me out, he brought me to his triathlon in uh, Columbia, I watched him finish, and then he brought me out to lunch and told me about the pro, uh, the program they have, the Cancer to 5K, so I was like, okay, I might start this, so that June, I, I, uh, I started the 12-week program, and my goal was to run the entire thing, I did not want to stop, I wanted to make sure I recovered back to where I was, so i I made it through the five weeks and the race day i I ran but i got twenty seven i think it was a twenty seven minute uh uh five k time so, so great great experience.
3: Kudos to you, my friend. That's pretty amazing, and it's always nice to be helped by an organization before you know you need them Yes
0: <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. um Maureen had a quick question for Brock and Laura
2: Yeah, uh well, Laura, you were here at the office a few months ago and we got to meet in person, which was very exciting. And also, yes, we got reunited it. in our so I yes. loved that. Um, uh, you told us that you're bringing cancer to 5K in New York soon, or you've brought it already. Um, I'd love to hear
1: more about that.
4: Yes, absolutely. Um, so, New York and Chicago are our newest expansion teams. Uh, our New York program is launching on April 5th, and anyone can sign up regardless of their treatment status, regardless of their fitness level. We will support you and make sure that you're never working out alone. Um, our locations where we'll be meeting uh, once during the week and once on Saturdays for 12 weeks, our group workout sessions are posted online at wwwcancer 5 korg um, You can sign up right there. We'll make sure that all of your coaching, training, gear, and race registration is paid for all we are hoping to do is to reach new survivors in the New York area and all across the country and get them back on their feet, just like um, we do with Gino. And he's been one of the most inspiring people that we've met just to come from when we first met him when he was inpatient to now when he comes and visits us and tells us how much faster he is than all of us. So um, we hope to have more success stories and kind of, increase our impact as much as we can and hopefully we can uh, get you guys out for a couple of runs this spring too
2: yeah that was just i think i think matt's thinking about it we should get him to sign up for the new york leg
3: i would only do that if yeah. i got to go um uh television with doug and um <laughs> we'd have to do some kind of like flash mob for two how's that
5: Maureen, 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 I'm I'm a new dad, just like Matthew, and I know how hard it is to find time to work out. So that's why we chose New York out of a, a list of 20 cities. I said, I'm going to bring this to Matthew, so he has no <laughs> excuse. No. Thank you, Ross.
3: Thank you. You know, it's always about me, so, but thank you so much for that.
5: Absolutely.
2: Well, that's awesome. That's great that you guys are expanding um and it's it seems like a wonderful program. I saw Laura talking to people about it at with breast cancer survivors at c four i w and getting people signed up, so keep up the great work on that
3: so what's the Thank receptivity? do you how do you kind of kind of like decide on a city and you obviously have to source patients and uh hospitals what what's the relationship you build with with cancer centers so I know Hopkins is kind of a bread-and-butter, great case right. study for how you can actually get an institutionalized bureaucratic academic centers to, to do something, and this right. for that. But what's even an experience as far as standing out of that, before we get back to actually your navigation services, which are unparalleled at Hopkins?
5: Right. Well, as you know, Matthew, it's just, it's a piece of cake. I mean, you just you develop <laughs> programs that you know patients and survivors will embrace, and getting it to them is so easy. Um, but all jokes aside, it, it, it is like you said it. I mean, it's critical to kind of build these partnerships and inroads with um, the institutions. I mean, the folks that are working with um, newly diagnosed patients on a day in and day out basis. So we've we've been able to do that here in Baltimore. We've been here for 16 years, and, and Gino's story is, is kind of a testament to that. And now it happens every day. So when we do pick cities, we we pick places where we think we can have um, the highest impact, both on a number scale and as well as relationships and, and, you know, New York is, I mean, it's, it's the, the world's capital and with, you know, partners like yourself there and others and major institutions where young adults are and should be treated, it kind of was a no brainer. Um, so what we do when we go into a city is we, we partner with as many institutions as possible. So we're, we're working with folks at Sloan and in Columbia and New York Presbyterian so all the, the hospitals in the area, as well as as many advocacy partners that we can to say hey we're we're here to work with you um and if you could share the you know the good word about this program that can help um so many patients and survivors in this palatin area that would be great um and then from there we we have a, a very distinct model that Laura can probably talk to a little bit about you know it this, this program the beauty of cancer to 5k is it's almost entirely volunteer run and driven um she can kind of talk to there's there's boots on the ground that are actually making that happen getting the word out yeah
4: Sure. There, we pretty much appoint some rock star coaches who volunteer 100% of their time to make sure this program works. Um, We also are really proud that not only is the program inclusive, it's really community driven. Um, We like to work within the, the existing framework of a community. We don't put on an extra event. There's no fundraising attached to being a participant or a volunteer in Cancer to 5K. Um, we're just trying to complement the existing community and bring something truly unique to um, what we can offer cancer survivors who are young adults. Um, we have find that a lot of young adults aren't lo- necessarily looking for a formal support group, support group, but they are looking for connections because when you receive that diagnosis, when you hear you have cancer, a lot of people who are young adults, I'm sure you guys can attest, aren't necessarily, you know, listing off a number of people who they can go to for um, advice and hearing about their experience. So we are trying to create a community but also embrace those partners um, that already exist and are already doing great work and complement those, those services with something really unique.
3: All right. So I want to go back to Gina for a second because the idea of, I mean, I go back to my diagnosis and I was literally under a blanket with, like, no muscle mass and throwing up nonstop for three months straight. The idea of having any remote athletic potential during that time was so beyond comprehension and I was actually relatively active I played racquetball professionally in college and I was doing all that and it was, it was just such a horrible thing to have no strength and not do anything but the last thing on my mind was oh I should go try to run right now when I'm growing up in time today Gina could you talk about that experience where you know the transition from my god I feel like total crap and these guys want me to run what was that like for you
0: um yeah it was kind of like uh it was, like a, it was a, a hard uh at the beginning because I, I oh um at the uh when i was like sitting around all day it, it was kind of annoying i yeah uh, i I was never like a couch potato in the first place i never really sat around and then just, like, it just got in my head, like, is this how it's going to be for a while? And then I was trying to, like, find different outlets to get through. I, I talked to, like, a, a personal uh, – the physical therapy and everything at the hospital, and they, uh, they they didn't really want me doing much. So I was like, when can I really get back into shape? So then, like, kind of when I lost grasp of the, the hospital, when they kind of – their influence kind of uh, got off me, I was like, I can uh, do things on my own now. So that, that's when I started the, uh, looking for what to do. I uh, even though I was feeling that it was still like I don't know pressing in my mind that I should be doing something <laughs> so that's that's where it started that's where I look for
3: outlets So so Laura what are the barriers then when you, you, you identify these uh, these patients and the last thing on their mind is is feeling better they don't even know it's possible to feel better and they, what kind of reception have you got I'm sure it's individualized but can you talk us through how you've been able to sort of hone that process
4: yeah, definitely. Um, well, luckily, we're kind of riding this wave in, in the research and oncology field that exercise, <laughs> shocking, is good for you. Um, but not only is it good for you, it's good for you at pretty much every point in the treatment process and the pre- treatment experience. The her story, Holly, is really testament to that. She um, was training and running, even just walking 10 minutes a day. And we're finding that her symptoms from chemo were were really under control, and then when she met her goal, finished her race, and took maybe three, four weeks off, found that the side effects from chemo really hit her like a ton of bricks. And um, it's interesting to kind of read about that in the journals and in the online and things like that, but to hear her story and hear her personal experience and then watch these survivors who about a quarter to a little bit more than that are actually doing the program while they're still in treatment, a wide variety of treatments, So hear their stories and hear how it helps them kind of, that's their two hours of control over their experience every week. That kind of speaks volumes. Um, So while the program isn't for everybody at the the time that we're doing it, I feel like because it's so inclusive and whether you can get out there and walk for 15 minutes a week or you're ready to start beating times and running and doing interval training and doing strength training and really trying to do something you never thought that you could do, before your diagnosis, um, there's a place for you in cancer to 5K. So we're really proud of our inclusivity, but we're also really proud of, regardless of how fast you run that 5K, you're doing something that, whether it was five minutes ago or five weeks ago or five years ago, you never thought that you could do after you heard the words that you had cancer.
3: All right, so can you drive the 5K?
4: (laughs) <laughs> well, I think the race directors might have a
2: problem with that, but,
3: I mean,
2: 3.1 miles is 3.1 miles.
3: <laughs> right.
2: We're, just, we're trying to get Matt involved. I can get
3: a smart car. He's <laughs> doing, like, two minutes. Wow.
5: Yep. Matthew, Matt, right. a lot of these 5Ks, they'll allow jogging strollers. You can bring the kids, so it's all good. Okay. <laughs>
3: I can probably get away with that. Actually, and just I don't know if you noticed this, Brock, but strollers, pushing strollers, gives you more stability when you jog. It's, it's the strangest. Can't you feel like you're falling forward. Right, because you like it. It just it's like having training wheels while you're running. It's like another mm-hmm. set of legs that you don't really have. It, it, I know. I well. Yeah, it's good. Uh, all right, so I'd like to take the last ten minutes of the segment to talk about the other breadth of programs and services that UCF. Offers because clearly cancer to 5K is a real milestone achievement, and again, it's very unique. And no one that I'm aware of is doing it. And clearly, if I don't know about it, doesn't exist, right? Ha ha ha! But in any case, I think what you guys have developed over the last, you know, 17 years is really enviable and unique. Um, but I, I think the one that's most impressive, at least from my end, is again how did you penetrate the the the, the shell of a institution, academic institution, to develop An actual like patient navigation program and and does that set a precedent to make everyone else look bad that they need to now work with you to make that happen as well
5: (laughs) well that's that's not been our approach but uh, if that's that's how they (laughs) they receive it and they want to buy into the the concept we'll take it Um, so the the, the quick history and then I know Matthew appreciates, and I think all is, is navigation for us is something we've done from day one. I mean, Doug and his, and his mom and the family did it out of their, their dining room, out of Doug's dorm room, and then we had a website. So we've, we've kind of always, and we'll continue to do what we call remote navigation. So anyone anywhere in the country can visit our website, email us, call our, I'm mean, going to say our toll-free hotline, but pretty much everything's toll-free nowadays, Um, And and we have someone on the other line that will help you and connect you with resources in your community, partners like Stupid Cancer and others. Um, But what we did uh, back in 2007, um, which was really taking on a charge that was outlined in the Progress Review Group report, um, which, you know, for those of you that are you know aware, there's these white papers that big, big, big medical institutions and, and government agencies produce, and a lot of them sit on a shelf. Um, but this was one that was done for adolescents and young adults. And there's groups like Stupid Cancer and groups like the Elman Cancer Fund and so many others that took these recommendations to heart and took them back to to their offices and did something about them. And navigation was one of those things. And it said that that young adults um, weren't getting the outcomes, improvements in survival rates and quality of life they needed. And navigation was a recommendation to do that. And so we took it back to Baltimore. We started at University of Maryland and we just we approached the institution and said hey we have this novel idea that if we embed one of our people in your hospital um you're going to have an extra person <laughs> and we're sort of an expert and a thought leader and have partners all across the country that will help us enhance the services that your young adult patients can have while they receive treatment here and the minute they walk out of this hospital we have a community that will welcome them and help them um have you know a better quality of life after cancer and they they were receptive to it. So kudos to Maryland for stepping up to the plate and being open-minded. Um, and, you know, since then we've been successful in growing that that program. To now we're in five institutions in the Baltimore and D.C. metropolitan area, um, Johns Hopkins being one of them, so the number one hospital in the country. Um, and, and none of these partnerships, I would say, were, you know, they weren't simple to get in the door. Uh, but it was really just to sit down with the leadership as well as the, the frontline staff, the nurses, the doctors, the social workers to have a heart to heart to say listen we 're all we 're all in this game for the the same result to, to improve the services and the quality of life for our patients that we 're working with daily and we think we can do that working with you um, we 're not trying to reinvent what you 're doing we 're really going to supplement what you offer um, and, and it 's been a successful model that we continue to to tweak at every institution. Um, no bureaucracy is the same at every hospital. Um, right. So we work with them, and we try to, to fit a model that, that works uh, across the board.
2: So what, like, what is the standard navigation process? So once one of your navigators gets to a new patient at Hopkins, what, what is their experience?
5: Yeah, so their experience is um, – so, for example, we'll use Allie. Allie's our navigator at Johns Hopkins. She's a, a clinical um, – a licensed clinical social worker. Um, she would assess sort of their their needs, um, connect them with um, resources both in Hopkins, resources that Allman offers, resources in the, the Baltimore community if that's where they're from, and then resources all across the country, um, help them – sort of assess what's their diagnosis, answer difficult questions, if they, they, you know, have questions or they want second opinions, whatever it might be. So really it's, um, as I try to explain to people on full side that aren't in this our space, you know, what is a navigator? It's really a concierge. I mean, someone that steps in and you're mm-hmm. a friendly voice, a friendly face um, that's an advocate on your side to ask the difficult questions to empower you to make those those difficult decisions and... Um, and, and, you know, make it a more seamless process as you're receiving treatment and, and the day that you walk out of the cancer center. Amazing stuff. Really good
3: stuff. And I think it sets a precedent. I've i I've always had this idea that there should be, like, a Young Adult Center of Excellence seal, like, good housekeeping seal. And it shouldn't <laughs> be the academics that decide what that is. It should be the patient advocate groups that decide what that is. And, uh, you know, I... I've, just like anecdotally, I think it would be cool if we came up with like the, the good housekeeper seal of approval for, for what this – because if you're really pioneering the model from the ground up and not the top down, that's what patients really want, and, and I envy that. I'd like to spend the last couple of minutes on this segment to talk about um, the element in the room for all young adult cancer, for all cancer in general, is the high cost. And mm-hmm. if you're older, you know, it still sucks to have to put out of pocket, but if you have some stability in your life and you have insurance and you're covered – It's a lot different than when you're in college and you're broke or maybe dependent on your parents and what does that look like and if insurance doesn't cover it and whatever. So you guys have been giving uh, scholarship funding to college students with cancer for many, many years now, and I've always looked at that as an aspirational thing, but there just needs to be more of that. So would you talk through how that process evolved and where we're at with it?
5: Yeah, a a lot of our programs are are origins of of sort of Doug's, our founder's, personal experience. I mean, Cancer 5K is a health and wellness program. Doug was a college athlete. Um, And the scholarship program is is no different. I mean, he was a a college um, student when he was diagnosed. And unfortunately, um, you know, he he had the means to sort of stay in college and and get treatment and and finish. But so many young adults don't. And so we started this program um, in memory of a young man, Matt Stauffer, um, who lost his battle to cancer, and was a college um, student, actually a soccer player. And since then we've awarded over half a million dollars to young adults um, in all 50 states, all across the country, that either are cancer survivors or actually going through treatment or even are young adults that um, have been impacted through a loved one. It could be a mom, a dad, a brother, a, a sister, a spouse. And are pursuing a higher education, um, and so we have this year uh, over 25 different awards. Um, you can access them all on our website. Um, so pretty much, if you're a young person, 15 to 39, and you've been touched by cancer, um, you would qualify, and you're pursuing higher education. You can apply, and there are um, they are competitive awards. Unfortunately, um, we do receive more applications than we can award, um, but it, it provides young adults an opportunity to. to and pursue higher education during or after a cancer diagnosis.
3: Very impressive stuff. All right, so final question here. I saw on your website that your strategic plan expired on December thirty first, 2013. <laughs> so would you have any interest in telling us uh, a bit about what the next five years look like for UCF?
5: God, you're good. You're doing all your research, you guys. <laughs>
3: Seven years, well, I, my I know, I, know,
5: I know, Yeah, I know Matthew's so fond of you know cumbersome strategic plans that can stifle an organization. So we just we just live minute to minute.
2: <laughs> great, we like that. Yes, it. exactly. It's a great philosophy.
5: Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, but in all seriousness, we're actually in that we have a strategic planning committee that's in the works of, of looking at the next five years, where, where we're going to put that stick uh, in the ground and go after it. Um, you know, our, our goal is to um, is to, I want to say necessarily grow. Uh, but really to enhance um, the navigation services we can provide to more patients. How we do that, is it more navigation centers or is it a model that others can take into their communities that, that's come to be determined um, and to provide more more opportunities for, for folks like Gino um, to have a better quality of life um, after cancer and to take back their life. And we're looking at different ways to, to enhance uh, programs like Cancer to 5K to bring them to more young adults and families.
3: And Maureen and I are really excited about Part of that strategic plan is you're organizing a fun run at the uh, OMG Cancer Summit this, uh, this April.
2: Yeah, we're really pumped for Absolutely. That.
5: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. The first so 50 folks to sure, roll uh, out of bed. Yeah, get, 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 a, get a, a, a prize.
2: Yeah, Don't stay out too late.
3: Yeah, I heard yeah. that if, if you have too many people that are going to go forward, and I think we're getting close to that number, we have to get, like, permission from the city We'd get a permit to allow a, like a mass of people to just. So let's do it. Let's let's let's, let's get yeah. that. Difficult, yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> if the city of Las yeah. Vegas is
4: going to say no to a big mom of cancer survivors running down the street and staying healthy, well then that's that's a problem. But. <laughs> well
5: then we'll sick Matthew on them.
4: Yeah, we'll we'll make it happen. So it's Friday done. morning, eight thirty. If you're coming out to Vegas, make sure you guys come out and. And run, walk, whatever you want. Um, we just want to get people out and active and enjoying the sunshine.
2: Yeah, so we've got, we've got a 5K lined up, I think, so 3.1 miles for people who want to run. If you want to walk, there's a one-mile route. And, right. and Matt's cancer to 5K is starting today. <laughs>
3: oh, God damn it. And
2: we'll get him out there.
3: Oh, Excellent. Thanks, Maureen. No pressure. Thanks, no Maureen. pressure. No
2: pressure. <laughs> I'll
3: just use my stroller. I'll use the kids as leverage. I'll just pleading about it exactly. so you're obligated. Cool. <laughs> all right well we've been uh talking tonight with brock yeso <laughs> ceo and uh, laura Scruggs, program manager of mission engagement and uh, gino de filippo a uh advocate alum of the Ullman cancer Fund for young adults one of the largest young adult cancer advocate organizations in the country founded in 1997 one of the original uh groups you guys are awesome we're really excited to have given uh, the, you know, the chance to share this with our listeners, and we're just going to keep doing more amazing things together. So thank you, uh, Brock, Laura, and Gina, for coming up to the show tonight. Yeah, thanks for
5: having Yeah, thank you, Maureen. Thank you so much. Matthew.
3: Enjoy your snow. Thank you, guys. Take care.
5: <laughs>
3: yeah, uh, Baltimore snowpocalypse.
0: <laughs>
3: no, they do. It, it, it was really cool. I remember just even back in the Talibans of before I had a platform, the, the groups that I met, I met Heidi Adams, and I met Doug, and I met Brock, and things were just, to me, they're just starting to aggregate back then. It's really remarkable to see what's getting done. I mean, I, I think, again, going back to this idea of if they're able to really go grassroots up into the academic centers about what they think patients want rather than academic centers saying, hey, we should do this because it's a trend,
2: mm-hmm. that's,
3: that's a good future. Yep, that's some good stuff.
2: Absolutely. So kudos to all that you're doing, yes. my Fund.
3: Very cool. Well, done. really great show. Kennyless, Redheadless show. Yeah, I
2: don't know how we made it through. <laughs> it's been tough. It's been it's really tough. Very difficult. Almost broke down a few times.
3: <laughs> we made it through the rain. <laughs> very nice. All right, folks. Now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so. To all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray! I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh my goose! You got it again. That was so terrible. I think you gave me cancer.
2: Okay folks, that's our show. Our 298th broadcast, inching ever closer to number 300. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. I'd
3: like to thank our guests. Stephanie Madsen, Brock Yeso and Laura Scruggs and Gino Filippo from the Allman Cancer Fund for Young Adults online at allmanfund.org. Next week's show, the turning champion, Dan Pallotta. Join us as we welcome back author of Uncharitable and Charity Case, Chief Disruptor of the Nonprofit Sector and Head Speaker Phenomenon Dan Pilata, to talk about innovation in the Nonprofit Sector, founder of Pilata Teamwork. Dan is also the inventor of the multi-day charitable event industry. Survivor Spotlight on Aaron Garda, writer and curator for NationSwell. It's going to be an amazing show. Don't miss it. Subscribe to our show, The Stupid Cancer Show, anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes, podcasts, and blog talk radio. Check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, that ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck in New York City on behalf of Andy Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, myself, and our whole team here at The Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here live next Monday at 8 o'clock. Good night, folks.